Salabona, and thanks for listening. Welcome to the Wines of South Africa podcast. I'm U.S. Marketing Manager Jim Clark. In each episode, we explore some aspect of South African wine. We talk with winemakers, winery owners, and other members of South Africa's vibrant wine industry, and we also give a sommelier a chance to share their impression of the wines. This episode, we're going to take a look at a grape that's so ubiquitous here in the U.S. that sometimes it gets kind of overlooked. In fact, 25 years ago, a New York Times article suggested that we should drink anything but this grape. Despite that article, Chardonnay remains the most popular varietal wine in America. But its history in South Africa is somewhat different. Today, it's the seventh most planted grape variety there, occupying about 7.3% of the nation's vineyards. But that means there is just as much Chardonnay planted in the country as there is Pinotage, which is much more closely associated with the country. We'll start with some thoughts from two Chardonnay specialists. Both worked at Mulderbosch under winemaker Mike Dobrovich for a time, but their career paths after that went in quite different directions. And while both love to work with Chardonnay, they've got very different ideas on how to make their wines. If you look at the grape variety, Chardonnay is seen as a noble variety. By that I mean it doesn't have that inherent, if I can say, simpleness that Sauvignon tends to have, which is all about the youthful, vibrant fruit flavors. Chardonnay is about different flavors that evolve over time and become more interesting. This is why, whilst a lot of us do tend to drink younger wines, we have the capability to age them for the top wine. And we know that the very top wines are aged. That's part of it. But they must show more secondary or tertiary characters during their transformationary age over the, say, 10 years. So that, that was why I chose Chardonnay for say. Hi, I'm Richard, uh, Richard Kershaw from Richard Kershaw Wines, and we are a small virtual winery based up in the Elgin region, about an hour from Cape Town. It's known as the coolest climate in South Africa, and it's an area that I've come to love, having been here for many years and visited prior to me living here. Okay, well, my name is Graham Vietz. How can you put it? A, a globe-trotting winemaker right now, and I've, I've focused on predominantly California. I'm um, making a bit of wine in Oregon as well for JFW, but my focus is really California and in South Africa for this Capensis project, which really is a dedicated Chardonnay project coming out of the Western Cape of South Africa. Let's start with the, philosophically where we came from when it came to Capensis. I believe South Africa is absolutely world-class when it comes to Chardonnay. And, and I use Chardonnay because that's the variety that I resonate with. A lot of my compatriots, great friends of mine, love working with Shannon and some guys like working with Savio Blanc, and I'm not knocking anyone for that by no means. This is a very personal thing. Chardonnay as a variety has always resonated. From the day that I started leaving Elsenburg, started working for Mike Dobberich at Mulderbosch. Mike and I were working on Chardonnay there, which were some of the most mind-blowing wines. So that was the initial reason for coming out to South Africa to do this. It's like, let's go and find these sublime Chardonnay sites and make a wine that can age and make a wine that can go 10, 15 years in the bottle without fail. A lot of guys, and especially when it comes to Pinot and Chardonnay, really want to focus on the single vineyards and the single vineyards alone. I, in my opinion, I love the Western Cape. I think the Western Cape is such a huge palette to play with. Why not try and do an expression in the fine wine trade of the entire Western Cape and tell a story that way? Chardonnay has got a huge amount of potential in the Western Cape if you find the right places to do it. The areas which resonate with me in a big, big way are Stellenbosch, the Kaimans, Gatvenet up in Feliesdorp. That vineyard resonates with me as a winemaker. Our estate vineyard at Feinbosch, that site which has got the right kind of soil content in the clay in the soil and the right altitude and slope. Altitude is not just 
being high in the sky. But it's a lot to do with the slope and the marginal soils that you get in those slopes and therefore the devigored vines that give you, I feel, better results. Another a couple of areas which resonate with me in a big way, which is growing in me, in a, a battle to start with is Barrydale up in the Clankery. We battled to figure out what was going on on those soils and, and figure out the winemaking technique that was going to work with that fruit because it is so very different up there. And the, the way the, the grapes ripen is so very different. And the, you know, those shale soils that are up there just give us a different profile. And we've really had to sharpen the pencil and sharpen the mind of how to ferment that and how to process that to get the best results. But I tell you, once that thing's under your skin, that Barrydale fruit starts to crawl in under there, and it's, it's hard to walk away from. You mentioned Elgin earlier. We actually don't play with any Elgin fruit. We started in 2013 working with a bit of fruit. For some reason, it never worked stylistically about what we were going for. For whatever reason, it just didn't resonate with me as a winemaker in a big way. For me, the climate is important because it determines not just heat and temperature, but humidity, the length of day. That is important. And Elgin was the only region that the old-fashioned Amaro and Winkler scale would call a region two, a cool but not cold region, one in which you had perhaps sunny days, but also cooler nights. And also you were ripening a little bit later when your day length was slightly shorter, which enabled the time that it spent in the evening to retain acidity and ripen slower. That was the, the, the critical factor. In, in terms of its degree days, we, we have 1502. That's on the border of actually region three, so region two and three. And that prompted me not just to come to Elgin when I was first at Mulderwash, but actually to even purchase a small piece of land, well, a 40-hectare piece of land, so 100 acres, which I did in 2006. But it also prompted me to look at a region where I could show the grape in its best light, because that was my critical feature. Second to that was I also wanted to look at a region which had the opportunity to show its best foot forwards, i.e. a region where the regionality played such an important feature. At the time, if you think back to 2006, 2007, whilst the Swatland was sort of coming on stream, and they were, I don't think they quite started their revolution, but there were clearly wines that were interesting, and they were given a bit of a trend as more producers joined in 07, 08, 09. You could see they were going for a particular style of wine that gave them that regional difference. And that was, to me, something that I felt strongly that Elgin could. It had a chance to be a Chardonnay-only region. Now, I'm not saying that we should not make other grapes, obviously. But what I saw in the best regions in Australia was, say, Clare Valley. Riesling is their dominant grape variety. They do clearly make Shiraz. They clearly make Semillons and other wines. But the fact is, your draw card is for that Chardonnay. And Napa does arguably the same with Cabernet. And I felt that this was a, a chance for Elgin as a small region, which it is, it's very small, to really be able to be in that really good space of being a, a Chardonnay forward producer. Graham's first vintage of Capensis was 2013, and Richard's was just a couple years earlier. While Chardonnay's history in South Africa is pretty brief, we should probably go back a bit further to see how it got its start there. In the mid-1970s, there were less than 10,000 Chardonnay vines in South Africa, and many of them were not in very good shape. Let's follow the story out to Robertson in the Breda River Valley. I'm Danny DeWitt, and grew up on the estate of DeWitzhoff, belongs to my parents, and I went to study in Germany, where actually I was introduced to certain grape varieties of the world to that extent. Amongst other things, the Riesling. I still love the Riesling today. 
So when I came here in December of 71, I actually landed back here. 72 was my first crop. It was a bit of a struggle and a bit of disappointment because South Africa had basically Sjöne Blanc, Panamino, Claret Blanc, Raisin Blanc, Columba, and then the Muscat varieties. You know, that was about the, the menu for white stuff. The red wine producers in South Africa in those days was basically located around, uh, you can almost say Stellenbosch and Swartland perhaps, to while the Robertson and Worcester area was in Bald, as a matter of fact, also Tolbach also was basically white wine. Until 1955, 45 wine was uh, the largest sort of slice of the wine market of South Africa. And with that was sherry, 45 wines, Muscadel, Annaput, or even 45 Schirmenblatt. And uh, so when I came in uh, the late 60s or early 70s, then uh, there was a big swing towards uh, dry white wines. So I thought that with my background from Germany and Europe where I worked, I will rather focus on top quality varieties and uh, so it was a hassle to bring it back to South Africa. But we managed to bring in some, not only me, other people also, plant material. When Danny says that they were bringing in plant material, he means they were doing so outside the official import system, smuggling essentially. That's because the regulations were particularly onerous at the time. A producer who brought vines in through official channels might wait 10 or even 20 years before those vines would be approved for use. That was too slow for many. This all caught the attention of authorities when a batch of Chardonnay turned out to be Auxerrois, a fairly obscure grape found most commonly in Alsace. In 1986, a government commission investigated, but they found that too many important members of the industry were involved. Rather than punishing the industry, the net result was changes in the problematic vine importation process. And I planted different varieties on the Wetzhoff to play with, obviously Riesling and Chardonnay, but also Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc. But Chardonnay was one of the varieties that actually fascinated me, mainly in those days because the similarity between soil of Burgundy and Robertson Bay actually I do come from. One of the reasons why Robertson is actually blessed with uh, fairly high acids is the limestone or IPH in the soil, and of course also the uh, fairly relatively spoken for the Western Cape low night temperatures. We have very high calcareous source and IPH in our soils. That's one of the reasons why the racing horse industry is actually very successful here. They actually discover three generations ago, that the horses grow larger and better out in Robertson and Richmond in the Karoo. And today we know that Richmond in the Karoo and Robertson has the highest free lime content of soil in South Africa. So it's the influence of lime in the Lucerne, the horse eat it, they get it. It's also a fact that the higher the pH of soil, you can have lower pHs in uh, fruit. And it works for us in Robertson, not only for the rest of If you also see later, MCC category, South Africa was actually a very nice category, growing, and came back, of course, in Robertson, very successful with it. But if you look where actually the different suppliers of MCC actually source their fruit, 
A lot of it comes from Robertson. Regardless whether they are in Stellenbosch or in Franzuk or wherever, they source the Chardonnay fruit from us. Under normal circumstances, we have a good cold winter. As far as the summer is concerned, we have our peaks that goes up to about, say, 12 o'clock till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That is our warmest peak. But in the Western Cape, we have the lowest night temperatures also in summer. So the, the temperature in the night cooled down a lot. The reason for that is every afternoon in summer, we do have a southeaster breeze that comes in from the coastline. And then after, you can put your watch on it almost, between 3 and 4 o'clock, I always say half past three, then that cold breeze come in, temperatures drop immediately. And that is normal circumstances for us. In other words, if the southeaster comes in, then we will never ever exceed 32 degrees. We will never touch 33. We will touch 32. If the weather wind is the other way around, it comes from the west coast. In other words, what we refer to the northwest and the temperatures can go over 40 or whatever is possible. So 95% of our summer days, we never will go over 32 degrees Celsius because of the wind. And in the night, the temperatures will go down to 10 degrees or say between 17 and 10, but even I could say other 15 and 10. So we do have warm temperatures going up during the day, but it cools down in the night. And that is a lot also, forget about the limestone, a lot to do with the fact that we have high acids. Because if you take the plant, during the day you have photosynthesis, and in the night you have respiration. And if in the day it was too hot, then the plant stopped with the photosynthesis. The leaves actually closed down, the factory if you want to call it like that. So no respiration anymore. And the carbon dioxide is actually manufactured. And then in the night, when it goes into the system of, of respiration, it does gives the energy of carbon dioxide. And for every 10 degrees Celsius of night temperature going down, you actually will use a half of the carbon dioxide. In other words, if the temperature is low, you're not going to use all the carbon dioxide, or you will not need all what is actually important. If, for instance, we have a very warm night, then the temperatures will go up. And, of course, you will use all your hard nights, your carbon dioxide. And the second source of energy for the plant after carbon dioxide is malic acid. So when the plant don't have enough energy, enough petrol in the form of carbon dioxide for respiration, it will grab the malic acid. And that is one of the reasons why in a warm night ripening season or a region, they will not have very high malic acids. Because Chardonnay was never a component in the white blends of the 1960s and 70s, when it came to South Africa, it was largely in the hands of estate producers, often younger companies who were breaking out of the mass market approach of the time and focusing on premium wines. Aside from Devetsov, that would include producers like Rustenburg and Baxberg, and then in coming decades, Telema, Delair, and others. There was an explosion of estate producers in the 1990s. Apartheid was ending, allowing exports, and the industry was deregulating, so there was plenty of activity. Chardonnay was the most important white wine grape for many of these new estates. 
After that, it started to become clear where Chardonnay was doing the best and where it was taking on a distinctive character. We've already heard about Robertson, where limestone soils and diurnal variation have helped the grape thrive. Let's hear Richard's argument for Elgin in more detail. There's a number of features, which I won't get too involved in, but the first is that it's at a slightly higher altitude. So most of our vineyards are about 300 metres to about 550 metres. Um, that immediately has an effect of cooling, so that has one impact. I always remember when I travel over from Selenbosch over the past, there was a difference of at least five or six degrees as you started to climb the mountain. The second reason is it does have a proximity to the sea. Interestingly, it's a region surrounded by mountains, so those mountains form what I would call a elevated saucer shape. At the back of the mountain, you've got a 1,000 up to, I think, 1,500 meters of mountain. And as you go towards the front, where it goes to the sea, the mountains are lower at about five, 600 meters above sea level. But importantly, even though you can't see the sea necessarily, it has an impact on the weather pattern. So in the summer, when it gets warmer, as the hot air rises, you get this massive influx of cool temperature coming in from the sea every single day at about two or three o'clock. And for anyone who visited the region, it starts getting windy from about that time. Now, it doesn't stop the place getting warm, but actually because of those factors, we, we generally don't have really, really warm temperatures. But certainly when I look at the, the last 10 or 15 years, the temperatures rarely go above 35 degrees. I think they do for three to four hours, depending on the year. And in many cases this year, we hardly went above 30 degrees. And again, it was only for 20 or 30 hours. And why that's also a feature is that the third part is the wind. Now, they talk about the Cape Doctor, that sort of strong southeaster wind. But as those winds form, they actually form a parallel situation with our mountains on the western flank. As the southeaster goes alongside those mountains, it stops any form of cloud which is coming over as well from escaping. So very much like Table Mountain, which in the southeaster gets this tablecloth, we get a tablecloth as well. I, I call it a lid of cloud, and it stays around for the whole time that there's a southeaster blowing and tends to blow from October, November. And in this day and age with climate change, we tend to get it right up until even the end of January. That cloud cover has a massive effect because it pushes the temperatures down to the point that we could be sitting at 20, 21 degrees very happily during the day. And unless that cloud cover breaks, where it may push up to about 27, it can actually stay like that for several days in many cases. And often when that wind is really pumping, we get a little bit more rainfall, which brings you to the fourth point, which is we get more rain. Generally, we are in a basin area. We are prone to getting a lot more rain. If you are in Selenbosch, you're getting about 550 mils of, of rainfall a year. The Swatland guys will tell you they hope to get 300 mils a year. If they're lucky, we're getting well over a 1,000 mils, even more in some of the wetter years. That rainfall falls during the summer and the winter, but importantly, it does form quite a lot in the spring and the autumnal time. So it, it does increase our challenges of rot, but obviously when it's raining, it, it will cool us down. The last thing I suppose you could argue is the humidity. All of those kind of go into a situation where you are generally getting cooler temperatures. So with regards to Chardonnay in particular, there's very four points here. The first would be is that clearly because you're getting those cooler nights, you're getting a higher retention of natural acidity. And with that natural acidity, you are able to retain it for longer and further. So we generally have much higher natural acidity. Important in that acidity, we tend to, because of those cooler nights and various other metabolic factors, which... I'm going to get too technical, so I won't. They, we also have a high malic acidity. So even if the 
total acidity is about seven. There could well be three grams or more of malic acidity within that framework. And therefore, you don't just get a high acidity, you get a much lower pH, which is important because that's what you feel in the wine when you taste it. It's that freshness, that what we could call mineral character. So that's the first thing. I personally do natural ferments on all my wines, where it's Chardonnay, Pinot or Syrah. And those natural ferments are much easier to do here because the nitrogen in the soils is much higher. Nitrogen is captured into the roots. With high rainfall, we generally don't need to add much nutrients at all. We can ferment quite clean, and it means that we get very, very good natural ferments. The third point of the Chardonnay flavor is based on something called erythoprenoid formation. Now, erythoprenoids are precursors to um, certain flavor molecules that exist in the medium of the juice which will then obviously be unlocked in the wine and, and generally unlocked by the various yeasts. Now, nerissoprenoids form as the vine starts to feel the arrival of winter or autumn, I suppose. Vines are plants and they have berries. But they want birds to eat the grapes and they want the birds to then drop those in droppings to plant more vines. There's a sweetness to the grapes that the birds will have an interest in. But as they get towards autumn, where they start to worry that the berries haven't been eaten, they release something called nerissoprenoids. You see it a lot in Chenin Blancs. That's another grape that has a lot of nerissoprenoids. Those formations basically are inviting the birds to start eating those grapes and then taking them. Now, the thing is, in a region like Elgin, nerissoprenoid formation tends to start earlier. Not earlier in the season. It starts probably actually similar to Selimot. But the difference being is that winter arguably in Elgin comes a little bit earlier because we're already cooler. But more importantly, our grapes are being picked much later. So bricks of, say, 23, 24 in a warmer region is when the nerissoprenoids will probably form. But it's very high and will form, therefore, a much higher, richer wine. But here we start to see nerissoprenoid formation from about 21 bricks because it's already at the same stage, arguably, that it is in terms of the timing of, say, another warmer region. It's just that we're still waiting another two weeks. So when we start picking them, we've got quite good nerissoprenoids within the grapes. The fourth and final thing, which I think is interesting, is also alcohol. Cloud cover has an impact on filtering out sunlight, and the sunlight is important to create ripening within the grapevine. The grapevine basically is picking up UV light, generally that UVA, so between sort of uh, 10 o'clock and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that UVA light forms something called absinthic acid, which is a switch that basically tells the grapevine to push sugars into your berries. So if you can imagine it's a warm, sunny day, and this is working on the basis that everything is looking good, it's a lovely day, let's get those grapes ripe because we want to sell them off to the birds. The thing is, if there's cloud cover, they don't push sugars to the vine. They do ripen phenolically because that's a tannic or phenolic ripening, but they don't push the sugars because obviously it's a cloudy day. They're unsure as to whether they should or not. Now, why this is important is that, interestingly, it's a big negative in a cold region, some of these regions in northern Europe, Canada, and so on and so forth, because you won't get your grapes to ripen. That's the problem. And you'll end up with 8% alcohol. But in a region like South Africa, it occurs because we end up then with alcohols of 15, 15 and more because it's always bright sunny days. So the advantage in Elgin having those cloud covered days means that we don't then get the potential alcohols that we would get normally in a warmer region or in a region that had less cloud. So we would arguably bottle a lot of our Chardonnays between 13, 13 and a half rather than anything more than 14. When um, making Chardonnay, I think the other feature, not just where it comes from, is 
to try and avoid too much what I would call, well, management of the wine, try and let it do its own devices. So arguably a further point to my Elgin argument was the ability to have juice that you don't need to acidulate, you don't need to do too much additions, you can do a natural ferment, and by whole bunch pressing it, we don't actually need to do any fining. So all the wines we've made are what the wine fundies would have us call natural wines, even though we say add sulfites, because again, we want the wines to keep going. It is an important feature because you can get away with not doing a lawful lot. Neither Richard or Graham are estate producers. While the Kershaw wines come almost exclusively from Elgin vineyards, Graham sources grapes for Capensis from all over the Cape, as we've heard. But both believe strongly in the importance of finding and understanding individual vineyard sites and what they can bring to the final wine. That's the key, trying to find vineyard sites that provide me with the building blocks to build wines which age and are easy to age. They've got to gain complexity and nuance as it goes through its period of time because way too many white wines, especially, are drunk way too early, and the real experience is, is lost. For a matter of fact, a lot too many red wines are also drunk way too early, and a lot of the nuance and the satisfaction of time is lost. With that philosophy in mind, we came out here and we said, okay, let's go and find these places that really do great work for us. And we buy a lot more fruit than we bottle, so we buy from a lot of vineyards and we keep on experimenting to see which works. But when it comes to our, yeah, we've been pretty consistent over the last couple of years about what goes into the Capensis wine, um, the final bottling. And the true spirit and the spine of that wine is based out of Stellenbosch. There's no question in my mind that the Hildeberg going around towards Bannock, where we situated with our state vineyard, and we also pull from this, this incredible little vineyard called Neutgedacht, which is closer to Somerset West and False Bay, those two wines give us a backbone which is absolutely sublime. It's based around acid, it's around pH, but it's way more than just the chemistry that comes our way. It's that citrus and that lime that is so hard to find, but it's the way it, it all integrates together as this framework to tack all the other wines onto you. Stellenbosch is a very big geographic area, but the Hildeberg and those mid-slopes all the way going around to the, to the Bannock where the Feinbosch farm is, there's something pretty magical about that for Chardonnay. The other sites that we have and what we're pulling for adds a dimension, another hook, another layer, another multiple layers into the wine that I feel we should be bottling to be that expression of these great vineyards of the Western Cape. It's almost like a triangle. Stellenbosch being one component, then I call them the outliers. That's the fruit from Kaimanskat, which is up high in those mountains. It's a dryland vineyard. Gives us an amazing amount of minerality. Minerality that I've never experienced anywhere else in the world. It's an old dryland vineyard. It's, I, I think it must be one of the oldest Chardonnay blocks in South Africa. It's high. It struggles to ripen. But man, when you get it, it's good. It is absolutely sublime. But it's, again, a very singular expression. And I use that for that length and that minerality. It comes in a, at a potential alcohol of nothing more than 11.5, 12.5 at the best day. So it's a very low-alcohol, mineral-driven thing. And it's not an acid thing. A lot of people misunderstand acid as minerality. This thing is the true expression of minerality. It's like smelling wet stones. There's a different character to what that brings to the finish. So that's my length. And then when I work with the Barrydale fruit, that is like salt and pepper to me. It always gives me that flintiness. And I'm a big fan of high and burgundy, which has got that bit of reduction that, <laughs> that scares a lot of people away. But I like it. I like that flintiness. I like that gun smoke, which Barrydale tends to give me in space. 
we actually go hunt for it in the fermentation techniques that we use, a lot dirtier ferments, a lot more turbidity in the ferments. We press very, very differently than we would for stuff coming out of Stellenbosch. We ferment with a really high turbidity because it gives you more texture. If you take all that turbidity away, we tend to get a very lean kind of angular wine, which is very awkward to work with. I think in 2016, we started using that for the first time to get that flint, that degree of a, almost a smokiness that pops out. That's not barrel-oriented. It's definitely a vineyard-oriented thing. And then we pull in from this vineyard called Robertson. They're Alice Pravad and Nino. They farm it. They make their own wine. It's called Quick Cump. And a lot of the bubbly producers, I know J.P. Cormont also shares a couple of rows there. On its own, the Robertson fruit is really, really smart. It's interesting, and it's nice to taste. It adds a lot of peaches and cream, but it's not as simplistic as just peaches and cream from us. It's got the glue that brings this whole package together. When you combine it with Stellenbosch and you combine it with all those other components that we have on the outliers, it really forms a part of this wine that just brings the whole sum together. And it's such a cliched thing, the sum is better than all the parts, but it's a cliched because it's a reality. It's a reality when you're playing with all these different vineyard sites. While Capensis will always be labeled as a Western Cape wine, this year they introduced another wine, also a Chardonnay, made exclusively from Stellenbosch fruit. It's called Capensis Silene. It's actually named after a plant called the African Dreamroot. We're releasing that in, in the fall. And that's going to be a, a solely Stellenbosch expression. It's a slightly, slightly different expression than Capensis. You know, one, it's appellated in Stellenbosch coming off mainly the Helderberg and our vineyard and constantly evolving. And I'm hunting down some really interesting vineyard sites all over the Stellenbosch appellation. Not to get too lyrical, but Stellenbosch is quite a dreamy place when it comes to the vineyard sites I work with. And I thought there'd be nothing better than showing this exceptional expression of Stellenbosch because that's where my introduction of incredible world-class Chardonnay came from. Again, I'll go back to one of the great mentors in my career and one of the great great influences of my career, Mike Tobrovich, who, who made wine at Tel He showed me the light with one of the great old, well-aged Del Air wines. And I can't remember exactly what vintage it was, but it was definitely from Del Air. And it was sublime. I get quite emotional about that because he's a fantastic human being who allowed us to, and I'm talking about us because you mentioned Richard Kershaw, he worked under Mike for many years. And so I thought, if Stellenbosch, why not? Let's do something out of Stellenbosch. Let's show what it's got to showcase. More than any other white grape, Chardonnay is associated with oak. Aging in oak barrels is the norm, whereas other grapes like Riesling almost never see oak barrels, especially the new, smaller French oak barrels that can impart their own flavors to the wine. I'll be straight and honest. Almost 17 years ago, I left South Africa to go to work in California. People were saying to me, the Chardonnays I initially made there in sort of 2004 and 2005, they were saying, no, these wines don't have enough Californian presence. In other words, they weren't oaky enough. They didn't have enough oak because I'd always worked on a very low oak percentage, 25% being really exceptional, maybe get 30% new wood on a wine. And, and I think all the commentary that I was getting in, at that time was you know, these wines were not quite California enough. And now you're talking about the days when Kongsgaard and the Peter Michaels were lashed with oak. So the subtle nuances of the conversation was when, when you're talking about tasting with some really big critics where you know, these wines weren't oaky enough. And I suppose as I evolved, 
in California has added more and more more wood, sort of ending up at about a 50-50 new versus old percentage. And, and that's kind of where we ended up. And when I came back here, it took me a minute to kind of relearn the fact that in South Africa, you have to turn it all the way back. And in 13, we had a couple of issues because I came out here. We had new wood coming in on the boat. I thought I could buy some second fill wood here from a bunch of different people. I realized very quickly that is <laughs> you just don't buy second fill wood in South Africa anymore. People are using their second fill and their old wood in a really big way. So we had a lot of new wood to play with, and we didn't have any second fill. So I did quite a few tank ferments, and I'm not a big fan of stainless steel ferments. I've never liked them. So from an oak percentage point of view and an oak toasting point of view, we've really pulled back in a big way over the last couple of years. I've relearned that South Africa, where you've got to be in a, between, I, I think the sweet spot with the, the intensity of fruit that I'm working with right now, we're kind of working on between 35 to yeah, 38% new wood in, in the final blends. And some years it's even less, like 16, we pulled it right back to about 33% because of the vintage not having as much power as, say, 15 and 17 and 18 and 19. So we pulled back quite a bit globally between here, Oregon and California. We've settled on three coopers. And I don't think I'm moving from them very fast. It's one of those things where I don't experiment too much. What I have invested in in the last couple of years is some bigger fruitera from Stockinger fruitera because I think those things are fantastic. And I've also invested in some ceramic pots from Claver, which I'm over the moon with. I tell you, those two investments have been the best investment around. I think those two vessels have changed a lot of what we do, and I'm super excited about what they give us. So from a wood perspective, it's a constant evolving understanding of where things go and what blocks can take more new wood and which blocks we try and shy away from new wood and then sort of refine it. But we've definitely settled on, on three coopers and we're not moving from there. But Chardonnay doesn't have to be oaked. And while unoaked Chardonnay is often a light, simple wine, Devetshoff took a different approach and set a high standard for unoaked Chardonnay in South Africa. When we start with the Chardonnay, I always have said, if it's a wonderful variety, that's what the listing is, it doesn't necessarily need the wooden barrel. It should be able to be a top grade variety standing on its own legs. And therefore, I also, in the beginning, we work everything through the barrels. And in the first years, a lot of people criticized wood. And thinking back, what was actually the reasons? The main reason was basically we didn't, in those days, fully understand what type of wood we actually need for the type of wine we're going to do. So in a lot of cases, the wine could have been a very nice citrusy-like Chardonnay, and then the barrels were, say, for instance, heavy toasted. And those two things just don't work. Or if you have nice heavy soil and you can have a bit of more nuttiness, yeast characters, old-fashioned chardonnay, then you can get away with more toasty characters in the barrel, that type of thing. The other thing is also price was always, still today is a factor. And so in the beginning, a lot of people were buying most probably cheaper barrels every year from somebody else. I, right in the beginning, decided I'm going to work with basically two people in France. I made it my job to sort of know them and work very close with them. And I also told them that I can only work with them on the long term if they also see me as long term. 
and we must decide what works for what type of wood, what type of forest wood, and also what type of toasting is going to be the best for us. And that worked for the vegetables. Unwooded wine must also have the same quality criteria than wooded wine. It's not another quality criteria because it's not going to the wooden barrels. Not at all. If Chardonnay is a wonderful variety, it must also be successful with the unwooded wines, which doesn't go to the barrels. Then, of course, what must you do with that type of wine, Chardonnay, still to sort of uh, protect the varietal characters? But also make sure if it's a good wine that it does carry site specificness from the site or the soil or the vineyard. We have certain vineyards that we, we know are the success of around my cellar, for instance, a type of soil, heavy clay, and the limestone hill comes from there. Whereas the bombalone comes from the mountain, uh, very close to where actually the finesse comes from. So more gravelly soil and so on. That was a wonderful exercise to start to fully understand the Chardonnay. So already in 93, we started with the first unwooded Chardonnay. The first wooded Chardonnay I made in 88. And the first one on the South African market was in 81. 81 wasn't a very nice wine. Unfortunately, 81 was the year that we referred to as the Lanesburg floods. And there was enormous amount of rain in January in 81. And we had, for instance, something like 18 millimeters of rain over about 10 days, but a lot of it was not rain, it was sort of drizzling, and then heavy rain again, floods. And with that also, botrytis that came into the stuff, into the riesling, the fruit came in, everything. So the botrytis, obviously, although we tried to clean the grapes, and we have had a lot of it, but it affected that one. It wasn't not the best example. 81 was... The first one, yes, for the Redsov. We were the third in South Africa. Baxburg was the first. The second one was another estate, but the wine was rejected by the wine spurs board. And my one was the third one, which actually should have rejected, but I don't know why they didn't reject it. But after that, we were successful. And 93, in other words, a bit more than 10 years later, the first Anwuda Chardonnay, the Bomolon. And the limestone hill only came about 10 years after that. For more than 27 years now, I have a team of the best viticulturists, the best in South Africa, Francois Pellion, and from America, Dr. Paul Fries, the husband of Zelma, Zelma Law. And Phil is working on the Vesov already for 27 years with me. Over these years, we have always say the focus to make a wooded chardonnay and to make an unwooded chardonnay must be exactly the same. So it must be ripe fruit flavors, not overripe, not underripe, but on scratching the bottom of being almost overripe. In other words, you want ripe fruit flavors, but it must be fresh, the acid must still be there, or the chemical structure must still be there, the fruit must still be fresh. And then, as far as the unwooded chardonnay is concerned, we obviously will go with it into stainless steel tanks and we work with different yeasts, uh, but basically three, it's all cultural yeast. I don't work with um, natural yeast or whatever they want to call it. I work with culture. We know what we are working with and so on. That's another story. Then we will ferment at temperatures 
on the warm side when we start off with the fermentation so that we can get glycerol that the yeast cells can form while they are splitting. It's important that they have nice temperatures, uh, say 18 degrees Celsius, it's nice for them, and 18 to 20, but so the, temp- the temperature is correct for the yeast cells to sort of multiply. So we have a very good counting of cells that actually develop or doing the job. And also we know that a lot of glycerol, which is important for mouth feeling at the end, is actually formed. And then we will slowly bring that temperature down to 16, could be down to 15, but not under 15. And we will run it down to almost dry. And when it's almost dry, about say 30 grams of sugar still left, 2% of alcohol basically, we shut off the cooling. Then the temperature goes up, make sure that the fermentation is completely dry. The moment it's finished with the fermentation, within 24 hours, when still a lot of yeast is in suspension, we rack the wine off. So we separate the wine from the thick muddy yeast, which actually accumulated at the bottom. But we try to capture as much as possible of the fine yeast that is actually still in suspension. Take it to another tank, fill that tank, no sulfur whatsoever, and take the temperature down to 6. Below 9, but we want to go to 6. So it's a low temperature. And every week we will stir do a bottom nose in the steel tanks where we stir the fine yeast into the wine. And by doing that, you actually shift the reductive value of the wine every time you shift it. So you don't need sulfur because the yeast cells itself is reductive. And as long as you can bring that in suspension of the wine, the wine actually stays, what we say, alive or fresh. And the temperature is very low. I've been criticized in the markets uh, sometimes that people think we add CO2 in the wines, which is not true. We don't. We, I've never in my life had CO2. It's basically because we take the temperature down immediately. And the reason for low temperatures is that we want the heat characters to actually enhance complexity of the wine, but don't start to form certain things that actually later can give you bitterness, that's always the first thing, or rancid old butter characters. Oaked, unoaked, Robertson, Elgin, Stellenbosch. There are even other regions we didn't get to this time around, like other parts of Walker Bay or points further east. Richard has even found some other limestone soils in a spot on the coast called the Lower Davensook Valley. With so much diversity, what's the common thread that distinguishes South African Chardonnay? If you're some and you're looking for something that differentiates Chardonnay from the Western Cape, it is definitely that ageability and the play of the palate when it comes to acid and texture. There's definitely an expression of how we've been able to evolve with acid, but also maintain a a really good textural element without going overblown. There's that textural element that I really work hard to maintain so that can envelop a really beautiful, beautiful natural acid that we get from the great sites. I'm not a psalm. I see things differently when I taste. I don't use big, fancy, flamboyant descriptors. I see things in very much a a shape, color, textural world and what the shape of the wine is and how that wine hits the palate and what it does to all the senses in my life. But the shape of South African 
Chardonnay is special. It's unique. When it's well-made, there's this textural play on great acid and layers, just magnificent layers. From the guys doing the single vineyard stuff to the guys like myself who are doing a, a few blends, there are very few of us doing the blending side, but the sing, even the single vineyard stuff has got layers and layers of complexity. a more global perspective of South African Chardonnay, I turned to Master Sommelier Morgan Harris, who is based in San Francisco and was the 2013 U.S. winner of the Moses Sommelier Cup. Morgan, how are you? I'm great. Great to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So you've been paying attention to South African wines for quite a while. What was your first exposure to them? Honestly, the first time I dug in was for the Wosa Cup for, for preparation. It was a great excuse to really expose myself because it was a category wines that I had been somewhat skeptical of, but the, the trip and the, my studies and preparation for the, the situation really totally turned me around on South African wines. And I just think that they're making some of the best wines in the world right now. And we're lucky enough in America to get a lot of those imported by the great importers who really focus on quality wines and they're always a secret weapon for me at tables because everybody underestimates them and I think that they're in many instances priced in a way that makes them ultra competitive if if you are working with a global wine list and that's sort of across the spectrum uh, not just necessarily Chardonnay on the topic today but really I have to admit a soft spot for white wines in general and I just think that the, the prowess of white winemaking and the available vineyard material in South Africa right now is some of the most exciting wines being made in the world and certainly in the new world. It really does seem, despite the, in theory, very warm climate of South Africa, that the whites have really been taking a place not just for quality but for kind of a unique character of their own. Right. I think there's... Obviously, a, a certain generosity of sunshine, but the great winemakers of South Africa understand how to temper that with acidity and backbone, and that may have to do with how carefully they source their vineyards and just the, the availability of old vineyards in South Africa, I think, is not to be underrated, and there's a lot of South African winemakers who really have realized what a special set of vineyards that they have and have taken time to cultivate those and not only farm them in a way that's ultra-responsible, but also make wine out of them that's spectacular. So it's good to see all those things line up between these great old historic vineyards as well as really careful winemaking that looks towards the global reference around whatever grape variety they happen to be working with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting you say that. Now, with Chenin Blanc, South Africa's got more than the rest of the world combined, so they're a little bit more free to write their own ticket in terms of style. But Chardonnay, there's certain benchmarks and expectations. How does South African Chardonnay find its own place, in your experience, in, in that context? Yeah, so Chardonnay, we do have this sort of great potpourri of varieties including Chenin Blanc, but I think the most particular thing about Chardonnay is the fact that it is everywhere. Everybody grows it. It's obviously a very commercially desirable grape. There's a lot of people who drink it who sort of order call 
Chardonnay when they're in restaurants or walk into a retail shop and just grab a bottle of Chardonnay off the shelf. So in that regard, the South Africans have really, I think, thought about positioning themselves from a quality standpoint. And the biggest part of the narrative for me about why South African white wine, but also in particular South African Chardonnay is so good is just... South Africa's ability to go beyond its own borders. You talk to so many winemakers who have done tours in Burgundy and tours with great winemakers in other parts of the Southern Hemisphere. And that's just not something that's really available to Northern Hemisphere winemakers because they have to be in their own vineyards at the same time as Burgundy is doing their thing. And love it or hate it, Burgundy, they've been making Chardonnay for you know, the last 400 to 500 years, so they've gotten pretty good at it, and, and certainly there's a couple people who you can, you can take some cues from there. And I think, really, there's a native understanding of how great Chardonnay is made that doesn't exist in many other parts of the world, let alone the Southern Hemisphere. That country to the east of South Africa that is on a continent that starts with A also knows how to do it, but South Africa's Chardonnay's at least the, the ones that I love best, have a richness of texture, um, an intensity that comes from the sun, and it, its love of the southern part of the African continent. But at the same time, you, you have crispness, you have freshness, you have a real understanding of the very difficult lees work that's involved in creating the profile of great Chardonnay, the reduction that we love from Burgundy producers like purely Colin Mori or Jean-Marc Rouleau, which are deeply beloved wines inside of the sommelier community. And honestly, a lot of the way that those wines taste and smell is a byproduct of process. And I think a lot of South African winemakers understand how to create those aromatics. It's a relatively technical thing to do, and at least to my understanding, it involves the wines going through some scary phases in the cellar before they wind up being their beautiful finished products. And that's the funny thing about Chardonnay, right? It's tabula rasa. It's a blank slate for whoever makes it because it itself doesn't have a ton of character, so that makes it a great expressor of terroir, but also technique. And I really would credit South African winemakers with having a deep understanding of how great Chardonnay is made that really is on display across the board, up and down the price spectrum. It makes it an exciting time to drink South African Chardonnay in general. Obviously, if we want to, we can get into more in-depth discussion of regions. I, I certainly have my favorites. but I was about to ask whether you saw regional variation, actually, among South African Chardonnay and how you'd just quickly characterize some different areas. For me, Stellenbosch is certainly, if you do like that more rich and glumptious style of Chardonnay, that's it's a good place to go. And certainly you're going to see more wines like that in that sort of more Russian river, if we draw a United States parallel style, but there are some quite delicate, fresher styles made out of vineyards in Appalachians that are a little bit closer to the ocean uh, on the southern side of Stellenbosch. So that's certainly something. But then really, when I start thinking about the, the wines that I loved most when I was in country as a category, not to say that there, there weren't individual wines that weren't great from a lot of places, was really Cape South Coast, in particular the Hemelinarda Valley. You say that a wine tastes like Burgundy, that's supposed to be a compliment, but sometimes every once in a while you get lucky and you say, well, this is really a totally world-class, regardless of where it's from, incredible example of Chardonnay. And certainly there's quite a few wines in the Hamel and Arda that really 
show that. You get a little bit more acidity, a little bit more tartness, and uh, I like that tang, that freshness. That the, the Great Chardonnay for me is really about that juxtaposition between texture and acidity, so that you get this very rich feeling on the palate, but then you get this bright or refreshing acidity, um, which certainly isn't equal to Shannon or Riesling, but at the same time is enough to make your mouth water and want you to come back for a second sip. Those are really the two regions that most impacted me when I was in country and tasting a lot of wines. And certainly what we see here in the States is a lot of Stellenbosch and a lot of Hemel and Arda. I, I think you would be rewarded for exploring South African Chardonnay to court and checking out what there is out there. It's funny, thinking of the Cape South Coast, we intended to send you three wines for our little talk here, but the Cape South Coast one, which is actually not from Helmonarda, but from Elgin, has gone astray. I hope when you get caught up with that wine, you, you enjoy it. That's it will the, find me eventually. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, and that's the Richard Kershaw, who we actually talked to earlier in the podcast. But we do have two Stellenbosch wines that did make it to you. If you were talking about the ocean influence, the... Liu Passant is going to be from the Helderberg, but quite close to False Bay on that cooler part of Stellenbosch. So the maybe, southeastern corner of Stellenbosch. That, that's right. Yeah, if I'm remembering it yeah. <laughs> correctly. Yeah, Andrea and Chris Milanu to me are not just to me, but to a lot of people, they get very high ratings and, and platters every year for so many of their wines. And the, the iconic single soil Syrahs are are some of the you know very best wines uh, of South Africa, and not to mention all the other slightly more humble wines in their portfolio. So it it did not shock me that they also make really good Chardonnay. But to me, what's interesting is where they chose to make it, right? These are winemakers who have carte blanche to have access to any vineyard site they they might want to work with in South Africa. And the millionaires chose to go to the sort of southeastern corner of Stellenbosch. The vineyard sits on the, the southern side of this, sort of right up against the ocean, and then you gain quite some elevation, and it's quite cold there. We didn't spend a ton of time in the area, but it's definitely one of the colder parts of Stellenbosch, and I think that very much shows in this wine. You do have texture. I'm actually drinking it right now here at 10.35 in the morning. Years of tasting groups it got me trained for this. But uh, yeah, it's really delicious, which is, uh, again, no surprise there. And uh, I, I think they should be very well commended for their efforts. It's a quite an exciting wine. And uh, is it important in the States, Jim? Yeah, uh, Michael Skernick brings this in along with the other Molyneux wines. Yeah, that makes sense. The other wine is from a different part of Stellenbosch. So this is Glen Ellie, and they are up on the Simonsburg, so about 15 miles inland from False Bay. How's this wine showing? Great. Definitely you can feel a, a little bit more richness to it, but what I appreciate about it is the answer to it having more richness wasn't necessarily let's slather it with a bunch of oak, but let's back that off, right? Like maybe the wine has enough richness on its own, and you don't necessarily need to tart it up even further. And so it has a generosity of texture that, that speaks to me more of the more inland portion of Stellenbosch, or it, it certainly gets relatively warm, but at the same time, just such a deft hand with the winemaking. It feels like somebody who knows exactly when to pick, if this were my go-to by the glass pour or the glass of Chardonnay at my local, I think I'd drink a lot of it just because of the fact that it lives in both sides of that world where it has texture, it has richness, but at the same time doesn't 
brood on that too much and focuses on its fresh appeal at the same time and something that I think would lead it to find relatively heavy rotation in my drinking word regularly accessible so right <laughs> if that's not an endorsement I don't know what is <laughs> great I'm sorry we don't have the, a third wine to, to talk about but I am glad you'll that will reach you eventually and for people who want to hear more about Elgin, Elgin Chardonnay, or Hemlinard Chardonnay, or Constantia Chardonnay, those latter two have been mentioned in previous podcasts. The most recent episode was actually on Constantia, and Matthew Kaner tasted the Baton Chardonnay as part of that. And, of course, we looked at the Hamilton Russell Chardonnay back during our episode on Hemlinarda. So you can get some more information there and other parts of our podcast. If you are in America and you're looking for some guidance around what South African Chardonnays you might want to check out. The Platter's Guide is, a, I think, an underserved resource. It comes out in a book every year, and The Platter's Guide is a good way to start to introduce yourself to the category and a pretty easy, accessible way to get information on that. They won't necessarily all be imported because they do all South African wines, but certainly the major players in South African importation will bring uh, a lot of them in. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually not really in a position to be plugging other people's books right now since my own just hit the shelves, but actually even in my book, Fortune I say, book. <laughs> thanks. But I actually, in, in my book, recommend the platter guide because if you really want that sort of every vintage look at pretty much every winery out there with good, succinct ratings that I think really consistently reflects what's going on in South Africa, the platter guide is great and is available here in the States now. For a long time, it wasn't. You could only access it online. Now you can get a great hard copy. It's a great resource. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's maybe a little off topic here, but I think one of the hardest things about South African wine is the discovery of South African wine. And the great thing is that there's a lot of very good American importers, but engaging with the fine people at WOSA, as well as using the resources that we have in a modern 21st century digital society, allows the wines to be more accessible than they, they ever have been. Uh, and once we get back to having restaurants and, and retail shops back to normal, certainly you should be trying to reach out to your reps who, who do sell these wines and, and tasting them because I think they deserve everybody's eyeballs and palates to try. That does it for our look at South African Chardonnay. You can find more resources and links to the various producers we talked to at our website, wosa.us. Also on the website, Check out the Wines of South Africa Psalm Session. If you want to learn more about South African wine, here's your chance. Get together a group of friends on Zoom or whatever video conference platform you prefer, have each one pick up a bottle of South African wine, and we'll arrange for a sommelier to kick off your online party with an hour-long rundown of the wines. You'll find more details on our website. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, or better yet, go to the platform where you found it and leave a review. That will help more people discover it, and discover South African wines. Our next two episodes will look at what is thankfully a rising trend in South Africa, the growth of black-owned brands. This has been a major struggle for the industry, but momentum is growing and there are some exciting stories to share. We'll look at two different models, one where an individual, as brand owner and sometimes even as winemaker, sets out as an entrepreneur and creates their own wines. And then in our second episode, we'll look at companies where groups of workers have been able to become full or partial owners of a wine farm, and then created their own set of wines that way. Both models put back into the community and are important signposts on the road to equity and fairness. I hope you'll join us. Thanks. 